You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. If British authorities in the colony of Jamaica feared one thing, it was Nobea Man. Someone like Three-Fingered Jack. The British had been attempting to create a stable colony on the island since 1655, when their forces invaded and captured Spanish Jamaica. This process, however, was complicated by the presence of a large population of free Afro-Jamaicans living in the hills. Called Maroons, these descendants of runaway slaves worked to maintain their freedom and live independent of British rule by raiding plantations, attacking soldiers, and harboring fugitive slaves. Attempting to quell the threat of rebellion, colonial officials adopted a strategy to divide and conquer the Afro-Jamaican community, taking advantage of existing cultural divisions on the island. However, in the 1730s, the disorder worsened. A letter from 1734 complains of the large numbers of slaves leaving the plantations to join maroon communities in the hills, writing... The consequence we fear may prove fatal to us if some measures are not speedily taken to suppress those rebels who certainly increase in strength. Fifty years later, a legendary rebel leader emerged and created a band of marauders that would bring Jamaica's economy to a near standstill. An article in the Royal Gazette, a weekly paper aimed at the island's English-speaking community, introduced Jack Mansong, an escaped slave formerly called Bristol, and later known as Three-Fingered Jack, as the leader of a gang of rebels who, in a recent spree, had stolen a large amount of linen, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, and poultry, and threatened to kill any slaves they found working with British authorities. Over the next year, Jack's exploits would grow from marauding to sparking a full-scale slave rebellion, which British authorities put down violently. Having captured Jack's men, the authorities placed an enormous bounty on Jack's head, leading to his violent end. A rival group of Maroons formed an agreement with British authorities and hunted Jack down. His capture and death is recorded, of course, in the Royal Gazette, which recounts, The party came upon him so suddenly that he had only time to seize the cutlass with which he desperately defended himself, refusing all submission till having received three bullets in his body and covered with wounds, he threw himself about forty feet down a precipice and was followed by Reader, who soon overpowered him and severed his head and arm from the body, which were brought to this town on Thursday last. The intrepidity of Reader in particular and the behavior of his associates in general justly entitled them to the reward offered by the public." It was an English physician, however, writing in 1799, two decades after Jack's death, that first associated him with the practice of obeya, Citing the practice of isolating six slaves in solitary huts, Benjamin Mosley writes, Many of their wayward visitors were deeply skilled in magic and what we call the black art, which they brought with them from Africa and in return for their accommodation, they usually taught their landlord the mysteries of sigils, spells, and illuminated him in all the occult science of Obi. These ugly, loathsome creatures thus become the oracles of the woods and unfrequented places, 
and were resorted to secretly by the wretched in mind and by the malicious for wicked purposes. Mosley's new take on Three-Finger Jack, that he was a practitioner of Obeah, became a fixed point in Jack's legend. It also pitted the African diaspora against Anglo-Christian authorities and depicted Obeah as a species of sorcery or witchcraft. In time, the spiritual practice of Obeah came to symbolize Afro-Jamaican resistance, and colonial authorities would do their level best to stamp it out. Today, I bring you a story that intertwines culture, politics, and magic in the British Caribbean. The story of Obeya. It's a post-Enlightenment notion that religion is something that ought to exist in a category of its own, separate from politics and public life. In the Caribbean and the Afro-Caribbean diaspora, Obeya exists alongside voodoo, Santeria, Yoruba, and other traditions that synthesize African, indigenous, and European practices, situating spiritual traditions within networks of familial, social, political, and economic power. In her work on Obeya, historian Diana Payton has suggested that, since it lacks the formalized doctrine and ritual of established religion, Colonial authorities and contemporary scholars placed it in the category of witchcraft, magic, superstition, and charlatanism. Since it was to the advantage of colonial authorities to deny the existence of complex religious or cultural traditions among indigenous or enslaved populations, authorities and outside observers have historically categorized Obeya as magic, witchcraft, or superstition. But these terms are clearly reductive. Even to call Obeya a religion loses something in translation, since practitioners and those who consult them can belong to a variety of religious groups. Obeya is a fluid concept, perhaps best described as a constellation of practices and beliefs deeply connected to structures of power and social life that transcend and call into question post-Enlightenment European definitions of religion, science, medicine, and magic. As a practice, Obeya played a central role in the spiritual and social health of the Afro-Caribbean community. While its practice involves what might be identified as the casting of spells and creation of charms, it also involves methods of spiritual healing, using the medicinal properties of plants and animals. As an occult practice, Obeya is handed down through oral tradition and intended to bring about healing, justice, and other desired outcomes. Its practice has mostly been documented in the Anglophone, that is, the English-speaking, islands of the Caribbean, including the Bahamas, Antigua, Barbados, Jamaica, and Suriname. Its rituals combine singing, drumming, and dancing with the creation of fetishes, talismans, and herbal medicines, and the making of offerings to spirits or ancestors. Historian Juanita de Barros has written extensively on the relationship between Obeya and medicine in the colony of British Guiana. Britain's Caribbean colonies were a major source of sugar, coffee, and cotton. In British Guiana, nearly 80% of slaves lived and worked on sugar plantations, where poor conditions made disease, injury, and premature death common occurrences. 
Though there were a number of physicians in the Anglophone Caribbean, patients needing care could outnumber doctors by the hundreds in some areas. A single doctor could be responsible for the health of anywhere between 1,000 and 2,500 slaves. In addition, 18th and early 19th century medical knowledge had not yet arrived at the germ theory of disease, and instead relied on outdated ideas about contaminated air or imbalances in the bodily humors, in which case physicians' prescribed treatments could often endanger a patient's health more often than the original illness or injury. But European doctors were not the only healthcare workers. Both male and female slaves were sometimes made to serve as nurses and attendants. In this context, African pharmacological and spiritual traditions blended with European medicine, and spiritual practices to counter malicious obeya became an essential part of healing in the Afro-Guyanese community, much to the consternation of European doctors. Prayers, incantations, spells, and rituals accompanied herbal remedies to help cleanse, defend, and heal the patient's body and spirit. Sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois described this kind of doctor as a healer of the sick, the interpreter of the unknown, the comforter of the sorrowing, the supernatural avenger of wrong. No wonder so many Afro-Caribbean patients expressed preference for the healers from their own community. The idea that disease could be caused by obeah-derived poison, magic, or spirit possession probably derived from West and Central Africa, where religious traditions divided the spiritual world between a remote supreme being and lesser gods who worked for good or ill in the material world. Obeah men and women seeking vengeance could invoke these spirits, even helping them to possess an unsuspecting victim, causing injury, illness, misfortune, and death. Given this worldview, it makes sense that Afro-Caribbean communities saw little difference between medicine and obeya, and chose to fight illness and injury with ritual. In order to heal the sick, the patient's bodies and spirits were cleansed, often by the use of water, purifying and protecting herbs and oils, prayers, songs, and dances. In more extreme cases, flogging or beating may be used to expel an evil spirit from someone suspected of using obeya maliciously. One thing was clear to plantation owners and authorities. Obeah men and women held a tremendous amount of authority and power within the Afro-Caribbean community. The late 19th and early 20th centuries were a period of particular concern about Obeya as a dangerous and, quote, uncivilized practice, leading to a series of prohibitions against the practice and teaching of Obeya in an attempt to stamp it out. Because it was viewed as a means of obtaining justice and a tool of resistance, the more illicit Obeya became, the greater its appeal for some. Prior to Three-Fingered Jack's Rebellion, a 1760 uprising called Taki's Rebellion was credited to Taki's use of Obeya to incite his followers. As a result, Obeya became a crime. In response to Taki's rebellion, Jamaican authorities established 
the act to remedy the evils arising from irregular assemblies of slaves, in 1760. The act relied on European understandings of magic and witchcraft, defining Obeah as, quote, pretending to have communication with the devil, or, quote, assuming the art of witchcraft. The language of the act also makes clear that there is no such thing as witchcraft, instead criminalizing the claim to supernatural powers. This most likely resulted from the passage of Great Britain's Witchcraft Act some 25 years earlier, which overturned prior laws outlawing witchcraft and instead redefined witchcraft as fraud, making it a crime to either claim supernatural powers or to accuse someone of practicing witchcraft. Those found guilty under the 1716 Jamaican Act could be transported, that is, sold into slavery elsewhere, or in the case of rebellion, they could be executed. As the 18th and 19th centuries wore on, similar anti-Obea laws began to appear in other colonies and specified increasingly harsh punishments. A 1787 law states, quote, any slave who shall pretend to any supernatural power in order to affect the health or lives of others or promote the purposes of rebellion shall, upon conviction thereof, suffer death or such other punishment as the court shall think proper to direct. While the anti-Obea laws of the 18th and early 19th centuries appear structured to keep slavery in place and the planter class in power, by the 1830s, slavery was abolished in the British Caribbean. However, from the 1890s to the 1920s, a flurry of anti-Obea laws appeared throughout the Caribbean, despite the abolition of slavery more than half a century prior. Authorities were keen to continue to define Obea as criminal. In doing so, the laws created a definition of Obea that reflected English ideas about witchcraft. Under the law, Obea men and women became charlatans and frauds, knowingly duping their gullible clientele. The possession of objects or materials associated with ritual magic served as evidence of guilt, and attempting to hire a rumored Obeah practitioner likewise became a criminal act under some statutes. But why would these laws persist in the post-emancipation era? One answer may lie in a statement from a Jamaican official in 1901, saying, quote, One must have regard to the relative civilization of these peoples. And there is no doubt the superstition of the Jamaicans enables these Obeah men to exercise a very real power over them. By claiming that Afro-Caribbean beliefs amount to, quote, superstition, this officer inadvertently revealed the use of anti-Obea laws in infantilizing Caribbean peoples. These laws allowed British authorities to define Afro- and Indo-Caribbean culture as superstitious and uncivilized, justifying the need for a more civilized or rational power to rule them. In time, these ideas seeped into Afro-Caribbean culture itself. And even as these colonies began to achieve independence from Britain, anti-Obea laws persisted. In Jamaica, the Obea Law of 1898, which condemns those convicted of practicing Obea to prison, quote, with or without hard labor, is in effect even now.
Perhaps unsurprisingly, even fiction written by British authors tended to frame Obeah as a tool for rebellion or witchcraft. Sinric R. Williams' Hamel the Obeah Man, published in 1827, is a Gothic novel set in early 19th century Jamaica. The plot centers on a slave rebellion led by Hamel, an Obeah man. The parallels with the real-life rebellions of Taki and Three-Fingered Jack during the previous century are clear. While the message of the novel is decidedly pro-slavery, the story itself reflects the shifting cultural and political landscape in the era leading up to emancipation, in which Obeya plays a significant role in unifying and motivating resistance efforts among the enslaved. Obeya plays a more convoluted role in Sir Henry Hesketh Bell's novel A Witch's Legacy, published in 1893. Born in the UK in 1864, Bell served for a time as an administrator in the British Caribbean. Fascinated by Obeya, he wrote a series of books, both fiction and non-fiction, including Obeya, Witchcraft in the West Indies in 1889, A Witch's Legacy in 1893, Love in Black in 1911, and Witches and Fishes in 1948. The plot of his novel A Witch's Legacy centers on Jack Moresby, a formerly wealthy plantation owner, now impoverished by emancipation, who receives an unexpected windfall from an old woman on the verge of death named Quamina. The author describes Quamina as, quote, an obeah woman and unmitigated vampire, writing... In the old days of slavery, every plantation in the West Indies possessed one or two Africans, male or female, who enjoyed an unenviable reputation for working obeah, the West Indian term for witchcraft. These people were popularly supposed by the credulous blacks to be in league with his satanic majesty, and to have wondrous mysterious powers not vouchsafed to the majority of mortals." The Obeya men and women obtained an extraordinary influence over their neighbors through an intimate knowledge of the poisonous plants which grow in every tropical forest and the frequent fatal uses they made of their knowledge. Sixty or seventy years ago, the slaves on an estate would sometimes be mysteriously decimated by the machinations of these wretches. The poisons which they used worked in a manner so gradual and their effects were so different from those known to medical science that crimes of this sort were very rarely brought home to the sorcerers, and they frequently practiced their fatal proceedings for years before the planter was even aware that such miscreants lived on the estate. The close association between Obeah and witchcraft, poison, and malice in Bell's novel should, by now, be familiar. A witch's legacy reveals the extent of anxieties of colonial authorities and plantation owners around Obeah and the interweaving of Obea with European notions of witchcraft in colonial narratives. Anti-Obeah laws remain in effect in many parts of the British Caribbean, 
and some still view it as a dangerous and harmful practice. That view is beginning to change, however, thanks to the efforts of scholars and members of the Afro-Caribbean diaspora, and Obeya is increasingly being reframed as a means of resistance, an indigenous cultural tradition, and a protective and healing practice. Since the 1970s, petitions have been submitted to lift anti-Obeya laws under the auspices of freedom of religion. However, Obeya is not recognized as a religion, and doing so may undermine its essential complexity and fluidity. In her 2009 article, Obeya Acts, Producing and Policing the Boundaries of Religion in the Caribbean, Diana Payton argues that, quote, the much deeper prohibition on Obeya emerges because Obeya itself is a construct produced through colonial and post-colonial lawmaking and law enforcement over more than two centuries. Today, some in the Afro-Caribbean community and its diaspora have come to embrace the study of Obeya as a means of cultural renewal and decolonization. The process of recovery is long, however, since the knowledge that would once have been freely transmitted from one generation to another has been interrupted by the vilification and outlawing of Obeya. With luck, the traditional practices of Obeya might yet be rediscovered and re-establish the essential ties between modern practitioners and their ancestors. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about the history of Obeya in the Caribbean, be sure to check out the episode bibliography on our website, especially the work of Juanita de Barros and Diana Payton. If you want to know more about historical accounts of Obeya, you can also check out the show notes for a link to the Early Caribbean Digital Archive, hosted by Northeastern University. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources for each episode, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>